Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hi everybody, welcome back to the NCHD Paramedic Podcast. Dr. Casey Patrick here again today. We've got Andy on the soundboard as always. Thanks Andy. And joining me today uh, to talk a little bit of uh, CHF is our cardiac coordinator, Brad Ward. Hello. And um, let's, let's kind of dive right in. Um, I'm going to give you a few cases, Brad. Let's talk a little differential diagnosis and uh, again, no right or wrong. Throw them off the wall and let's see what sticks. Sounds good. So first patient's a 62-year-old male called for shortness of breath. Uh, on exertion, swelling, been going on for a couple weeks. He's out of his Lasix. His heart rate's 80. His blood pressure's 160 over 80. No fever, normal sats on room air, no respiratory distress. He's speaking clearly. Listen to him. He's got a few rowels, one to two plus pitting edema in his legs. What do you think about that guy? Uh, sounds like a chronic CHF. He's got Lasix as a prescription, so he probably has a diagnosis. We've got uh, just a little bit of lung sounds. A little bit of wet lung sounds, nothing too bad. He's speaking clearly. I'd say he's not in much distress at this point. Uh, this, is, this may be his baseline. This may be just slightly worse than his baseline. So fluid overload. Yeah, I mean, that's fairly obvious one. What else would you put on your list? Uh, he could be pneumonia. He could be CHF. Not a whole lot else. I mean, pretty straightforward. He had a history of COPD, history of asthma, some other, you know, lung issues. Um, worse than renal failure, you know, worse than hepatic failure with, with edema. I mean, other things that are way down the list. But, again, sounds pretty straightforward, right? Out of his Lasix, a little more puffy. Rouse, sounds like volume overload, right? Sounds like CH, it. CHF exacerbation. So, second case is going to be a 59-year-old female. Severe shortness of breath, a couple hours. She's got a, you know, similar history as the last guy. Hypertension, CHF, diabetes. Heart rate's one. 30, blood pressure is 220 over 110, SATs are 88 on room air. She's breathing, you know, 35, 40 times a minute. So a little different than the last guy, right? Sure. What do you think about that guy? So it's achypnea, tachycardia, severely hypertensive, uh, lung sounds, rolls throughout, obvious distress. She's going to be, she can be a hypertensive crisis. She's probably acute CHF exacerbation. I mean, other things you could throw on board, you know, potentially, again, less likely, but, you know, she's... Short, short of breath, hypoxic. Could be tachycardic. COPD or pneumonia. Yeah, th- throw PE on there sure. um, for good measure. Um, but again, it sounds like she's got a history of CHF. She's got some rouse, um, but not the exact same flavor as the first guy. No, she seems to be a little more urgent. Yeah, so let's let's throw number three up. 73-year-old male. Um, call was for general weakness and shortness of breath. Wife says he passed out right before she called. Been getting worse over the past day. You get your vital signs and... Hopefully it sets some alarms off and it'll get you get you looking a little closer. His heart rate 67. His blood pressure 70 over 40. Uh, no fever. Sats are 92 on room air, and respirations are 30 times a minute. So you look at him too. He doesn't he doesn't look great. He's pale. Again, rouse throughout. He's got lower extremity edema. What do you think about that guy? Yeah, that sounds like cardiogenic shock. He probably started off like our second patient and just got real bad over the last 24 hours. What's the first thing you want on patient three? Really, on, on all these guys, but on patient three for sure. Uh, BiPAP. CPAP, BiPAP. Yeah, and what's the first test you want to run? Going to look at an EKG on them, Absolutely. make sure they're not having a STEMI. Right, and you know, on, on this last gentleman, you, your 12 your is going to show STEMI. So, again, one more time for the listeners out there. The first patient was short of breath, swelling for a couple of weeks out of the Lasix. Second was short of breath for a couple of hours, 
more severe, more severely hypertensive to kick neck tachycardic. So vital signs were, were out of whack in, in patient two. Patient three was short of breath, passed out, STEMI, basically with, with shocky vital signs, right? Systolic is 70. So in all three of these cases, as we talked through them, part of our differential was CHF exacerbation. So again, you know, that was really the point of kind of going through this is that we kind of throw CHF exacerbation out there and these cases couldn't be more different, you know, one, two, and three. So I think sometimes when we use that diagnosis in that broad of a sense, it's not terribly clinically helpful. And so obviously I drew the cases up to, to make clear lines there. But I think what I want to talk about in this part one of our CHF podcast is a little better way to divide CHF exacerbation and hopefully help it make a little more sense for you clinically so that all three of those patients don't end up with the same diagnosis. So let's take it back and let's try to divide CHF exacerbation into three groups. And the three groups I want to talk about are going to be chronic exacerbation, chronic volume overload, number one, number two, acute pulmonary edema, and number three, cardiogenic shock. And if you're paying attention, that matches the, the three cases that we just talked about. And again, all these may have history of CHF. They all may have history of depressed ejection fraction. They all may be on Lasix. Um, they all may have hypertension and diabetes. So, you know, those things on the med list, those things in their history, they don't always lead you to the exact diagnosis. You have to look at the patient a little closer. So in today's podcast, we're going to, you know, it's not a cardiogenic shock podcast, so we're going to kind of steer away from that one. Stay tuned. We'll come back and talk about it more. What I want to talk about today in more detail, though, is acute pulmonary edema and kind of get down to the details in acute pulmonary edema. Who gets it? Why do they get it? How do they get it? So when you get a call for a patient like patient number two, Brad, you know, the 59-year-old patient, shorter breath for three or four hours, heart rate's 124, systolic's 220, SATs are in the 80s. How does that patient look? Not well. That patient looks sick. So just general general positioning, general like... They're sitting up. They've usually sat up themselves. They're tripoding sometimes. They can be walking around. They can be leaning up against a countertop or the back of a sofa. They're sweating profusely, pale. They look they look sick. Yep. So in the sick or not sick category, sick. these people are usually pretty clearly sick. For sure. Um, and usually, who gets pulmonary edema? Usually these people start out with some myocardial stress, myocardial insult. Again, think about the normal vascular disease risk factors. Think about diabetes. Think about age, uh, tobacco use, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, you know, history of coronary disease. All those things are going to cause your, you know, your endogenous uh, CHF pulmonary edema risk factors, but also don't forget there's external cardio cardiac insults as well. Some of those are. Could that be meth or cocaine or the synthetics that are out there right now? Yeah, for sure. Anything that's going to you know, put an excess strain on the myocardium, it can be, it can be again, endogenous or exogenous. So with all that, why does the myocardial stress cause acute pulmonary edema? So it really starts with, with our stress hormones and the stress hormones basically cascade and create a vicious cycle. It starts with sympathetic Hormonal release activates the renin-aldosterone-angiotensin system. Again, what stress hormones? Mostly norepinephrine, epinephrine. We know what both of those do. So give somebody a bolus of norepi, what are you going to expect? Higher blood pressure. Right. So you're going to get diffuse vasoconstriction, which is going to increase afterload. You're going to get, after vasoconstriction, blood volume is going to shift centrally. If you have peripheral vasoconstriction, again, with the blood volume shifting centrally, you're going to have increased preload. So hold tight. Don't get worked up preload, afterload. I learned preload as the cardiac filling volume and afterload as the pressure the left ventricle pumps against. 
So basically you're stressing it out from both ends. Exactly. Because when you constrict, increasing the pressure that the LV has to pump against, and you're also shifting volume centrally so that the preload, the right, right side of pressures are going to be higher as well. I'd love to take credit for this analogy. I borrowed from Corey M and it basically compares preload and afterload to a faucet. And as simple-minded guy, I think that anything that can take things back to something like plumbing is going to make more sense to me. So stay with me for a second. I promise this is going to make sense. Preload is basically the faucet, and the faucet's left on. Afterload is the sink drain. If you think about it, you've got the drain clogged because of the stress hormone release. You've got the faucet turned up because everything that was, all the blood volume that was peripheral is now shifted central. So where does the water overflow go in our bathroom? It goes into the floor. Where does it go in our body? To the lungs. To the lungs, exactly. So again, let's take a step back and just review that because that was quite a bit of info. So one more time through, all of it starts with the cardiac insult. MI, cocaine, internal, exogenous, stress hormone activation, norepinephrine, epinephrine, vasoconstriction. We know that's what those drugs do. That's why we use them. Volume shifts from peripheral to central, so increased preload, huge blood pressure increase, increased afterload. The heart has more fluid to pump and more resistant to pump against. So the faucet's turned up and the drains clog, spill over, again, like Brad said, is into the lungs. So how do we treat acute pulmonary edema when we find it? So again, let's step back to the sink analogy. Pretty simply, if we can turn off the faucet and unclog the drain, that's, that's going to be the, our obvious answers, right? Sure. So decrease preload, decrease afterload, and think about your drain. What's the additional tool that you have when you... You're going to turn off the water. You're going to maybe get some Drano and snake the drain. What else would you do? You could use a plunger. Plunger, right? So I think that, uh, you know, we've got a plunger on the truck, you know. So if you think about non-invasive ventilation, that's going to be our plunger. Reducing preload and afterload. Thankfully, we've got a drug that does both of those. So that's nitro. Higher doses, correct. What about dumping the water out into the floor? So, again, if you had a bucket and you pailed the bucket out into the floor, what would that, what would that equal in, in, our, uh, in our human body analogy here? If you just get, get rid of the water altogether. Uh, using Lasix or diuretics. Yeah, so we'll talk a little bit about the uh, pros and cons of those. You know, again, thankfully we can decrease preload and afterload with nitro. How do we how do we give that now? So we can do it uh, as a paste, and we can do it sublingually. Excellent. And so again, let's go back to these patients. What do they look like? They look like they're sick. They're sweaty. They're pale, diaphoretic. So when we think about transdermal drugs, and you've got a diaphoretic sick patient how how well are we going to absorb probably not going to work paste? well not great right and then we talked about the plunger sure for our problem cpap or bipap or bipap and you put the mask on you don't want to take the mask off every single time to give them sublingual and what happens when you get to the hospital and you take the mask off what's under their dry tongue the unabsorbed nitro exactly so in these folks they're sick um you know to get after low reduction with nitroglycerin got to have pretty large doses so currently, again, we're using a combination of sub, sublingual and, and paste to tackle this, but put a pause here for uh, part two to talk a little more about it. I think we can do this a better way. Thankfully, though, we do have a plunger, and that's non-invasive positive pressure. So if you strap the mask on, you got a setting of 10 over 5, what are you doing? Instead of pushing the fluid down the drain, you're pushing the fluid out of the lungs into the left side and you know, improving your pulmonary function. So again, we're going to talk a little bit more about nitro specifically in part two. But let's, let's recap one more time. Again, I think CXF exacerbation is too broad. So let's consider three groups, acute pulmonary edema, chronic volume overload and exacerbation, and cardiogenic shock. Now, cardiogenic shock's easy. That's the hypotensive shocky patient. You know, usually, you know, often 
going to have STEMI with that, and those are the ones that need pressors. I do think it's important to draw, draw the line here between the chronic volume overload and the acute pulmonary edema. What are some differences that we can use in those two? And again, these cases are, are going to be very black and white because that's where we're starting, and there can be gray zones here with, with anything. But when you see a chronic volume overload patient, what are some differences between that patient and acute pulmonary edema? They don't appear to be in so much distress, and they usually don't have such a drastic vital sign change. So you can look at the heart rate, you can look at blood pressure, you can look at um, SpO2. And then look at the patient the themselves. Patient themselves, right? Because the sick acute, or not sick. Right. And, and you know, the, the chronic overload may be hypertensive, maybe 160 over 80 or 170 over 90, but they're not going to be tripoding. They're not going to be soaking wet with sweat. The other thing I think important to put in that list is they're going to be quicker onset in acute pulmonary edema versus chronic volume overload. And you're kind of kind of saying it right there. And if you think back to our cases, our first gentleman had symptoms for two weeks. Our second lady had symptoms for two to three hours. So again, there's a, you can always create a gray zone patient here, but I think to try to divide them up in your mind is going to help us going forward. So don't forget the sink analogy, preload, faucet on, afterload, drain clogged. So we've got increased preload and increased afterload because of stress hormone release. We want to start with the plunger or positive pressure. We want to turn off the faucet and open the drain. It's going to be with nitrates. And, you know, one, one question people out there listening may be asking is, you know, you briefly touched on Lasix earlier, and I've not expounded on it any further. And the reason being is, is that, you know, for a long time when you asked CHF exacerbation, the first thing that people would, would mention was Lasix. Lasix up front. Give Lasix quickly. And in a patient who is clearly volume overloaded, you know, like patient one missing their Lasix doses, this may be the absolute right choice. But when we think about patients with acute pulmonary edema, when you take those patients and look at them as a separate entity, only about half of those are hypervolemic. The other half is euvolemic or hypovolemic total body. And again, think back to that, that shift, right? Vaso, vasopressor-like action because you're releasing all your endogenous epi and norepi, peripheral vasoconstriction, central volume shift. Those patients may not need Lasix. So what you do, you take a euvolemic patient you give them 40 or 80 Lasix, what happens to them three hours later? Their pressure goes down. Their pressure goes down, their renal function tanks, because they weren't hypervolemic to start with. So now you've made them hypovolemic. Right. So the catch is, is that they may need Lasix, but they need more time. They need their volume shifted to be able to properly determine whether or not their volume status warrants it or not. So that's not something from a pre-hospital setting that we can ac accurately determine. And to be honest, it's not something from an ED setting we can really accurately determine most times. It's going to take time for that equilibration to take place. So up front, non-invasive positive pressure, nitrates, nitrates, nitrates. Don't dump the buckets out till you're sure the volume is too high. And again, that's going to take time and going to take an echo. Back to cardiogenic shock, pretty straightforward. We're going to use pressures. Always consider what set these folks off. Again, that 12 lead is going to be really important. And stay tuned to part two, and we're going to discuss IV nitrates in a little more detail and our coming changes in our protocols here at MCHD. Again, thanks, Brad, for joining us. Thanks, Andy, for working the board. And we'll talk to you guys again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.